you see the way I balanced it this time because we got burnt quite badly last time. Uh, are you talking about the balance in terms of it's more towards you in terms yeah, of recording? Yeah, so. because my voice didn't really carry. But let me time. also explain to you, John, I'm going to tone down my bellowing. There was a lot of bellowing. Because I think it makes it hard to mix. You know, I, people people were wondering why we'll be doing the podcast in a kennels. Yeah, and you were looking for a new puppy and I was like shouting in your face. Um, I'm a skillful editor, but I can't skillfully edit whenever I'm shouting and you're not shouting. Well, Joe, I think we should skillfully edit out this bit because it has nothing to do with tonight's podcast. Well, which John, is about what? Well, John, I think we've just seen the last of Sheila. By the way, should we actually introduce the podcast first? Is that even necessary? Surely those that listen will know by now. <laughs> Nobody listens. <laughs> That's um, true. Hello, welcome to Stalemates with me, John Stalemates. Uh, me, Joe, still mates. Curiously, I don't share the same, the same surname with John. You literally do. You just said the same thing, surely. I'm singular. I'm still mate singular. I said still mates. But I'm Joe still mate. Oh, really? Yeah. What must have brought this on? Well, you're from the Ballymena still mates, and I come from a very distant, closely. I, I'm very much not. The Surrey still mates. No, I've never been to Ballymena. <laughs> I never will. You've never been to you? No. Well, I've been to me, and that's why. I, I can't go to Balamina. Anyway, this is this is our this is our cack-handed way of saying welcome to another episode of Stalemate. That's exactly what we mean. That's exactly what we mean. Hi Joe, how are you? How's your week been? Well, uh, what can I say John? It's actually been fairly busy. Uh, I actually didn't think you were going to answer in in such actually, a prosaic actually, manner. Yeah, I, I thought you'd make some shit up. No, I'm actually delving to think properly about how my week was. Um, my week was, my, my, my week happened, but really most of the week was geared towards thinking about watching what we watched tonight. Really? Actually, yeah. I haven't been sleeping, Joe. So I, I, I'm hoping this podcast, during this podcast, you'll be able to give me some tips, hot tips, on how to get some shut eye, because I am frankly fucking exhausted. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't slept a wink. Not one wink. Not one wink. Not in, never mind forty. It's, it, it's it's worse than that. It's sort of like I'm a sort of asleep. I'm dreaming, but I'm also always about to be awake. Yeah, yeah. So it's that thing where you're like sort oh. of dreaming, but you're just in a shallow sleep. So you just, oh, every five seconds. Your sleeping is literally wake, wake, waiting to wake. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the cusp of consciousness all you the are... time. And you know me, you've seen the way I drink. I never like to be on the cusp of consciousness. Yeah, you positively love it. So you, you haven't been deep in the arms of Morpheus. You're kind of jittery. You're going, Morpheus, get off me. I may have to wait for my taxi. Is that my taxi? It's for Neil yeah. Gaiman looking hands. <laughs> All over my body, squatting on my chest. But those are earnest hands. Those are award-winning oh, hands. Yeah, but his soft, sibilant whisper, truisms in my ear. Get off! Stop saying, oh, it's really bad being a writer and being a creative. <laughs> Stop using the word creative. Can I just shock you? We both quite like Neil Gaiman. No, we don't. I hate Neil Gaiman. I was waiting for I'm you to say that. I'm deeply jealous of Neil Gaiman. Mm. And, uh, if, and you're, if you're listening, Neil, yeah. call me. Please call me. 
I can sort you out. He'll and I do you, mean with boxing gloves. He will give you a he will give you both barrels and then he will sort you out verbally. Close personal friend of Alan Moore. I believe who's retired so, this week. So jealous. What Alan Moore's retired? Oh, yeah, I got the latest news. But this is the news roundup. This is our two Ronnie's news desk. <laughs> uh, Alan, Moore, Alan Moore has officially announced his retirement from writing this really? week. Really? Yeah. He's stepping away from it to pursue more important interests, apparently. What magic? More magic. I would say so. You yeah. know, he worships a snake god called Glycan. Indeed. Uh, who is a sock. Darren explains Alan Moore. He's very playful about this. Yeah, he's he's what you would call puckish. He is puckish and yeah. insouciant. But he also has a very... A very... Literally your catchphrases. He said puckish and insouciant. Oh my God, he's my guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's my religious kind of uh, devotee. He... Should we just talk about Alan Moore? I really like Alan I would Moore. love to. Yeah. Uh, think about Alan Moore. Is Alan Moore... Knows the score. You went to populate itself. Yeah, I did. I almost posted on the Guardian uh, Facebook post today <laughs> about Alan Moore retiring. Alan Moore knows the score then I thought better of it because I thought I would inspire vitriol yeah I did spend all those Monday nights in Martine's nightclub in Basingstoke not (laughs) soaking up a little bit of truth but Alan Moore does know the score not 160 miles from the ley lines of Northampton I'll be bound exactly you know it's probably on the same ley line it's a big ley line like a squid's tendril not just a brilliant writer but a, a cultural heavyweight that's kind of hung his pen up or put it down what do you do with a pen does one throw a pen on the floor? Does one hang it up? I, Squirt the last of the ink out of it? I just, I know. you know, usually get some vinegar from the kitchen, then try again if it doesn't work. And throw it away! That's what Alan Moore's just done. Yeah. Um, that's a shame. That's a shocking shame. I didn't realise that had happened. I kind of like that idea, though, because... Uh, it is good. Yeah, he's barred or literally condemned every single movie adaptation of his writing, which I think is perfectly reasonable and right. Uh, well, I've seen some of those films, so yeah, he's bang on the money. Although, to be fair, can I shock you, Joe? Shock me. I quite like V for Vendetta. Oof. Yeah. No one does, I do. Can I shock you? I quite like it too. Oh my God. I think I prefer it to the book. Forgive Whoa, me, that Alan. is outrageous. <laughs> Don't ever say that It just before. gets to the point more quickly. Um, well, it's shorter. I'll give you that. I'm not the most spiritual human being on, you the, know, on the planet. I won't read I the novel. I'll wait for the movie, says Joe. I admire the mystical insights into how we should live our lives. <laughs> but really, just, just cut to the action. You know, with Mystical insights? Be for vendetta? Alan Moore is all about... Anarchism. Yeah, but it's deconstructing the ideas of protest and what it means to properly protest and how we receive information. It's a very complex and elaborate kind of treatise. You see, he did understand it. He did get it. And I prefer John Hurt screaming into a giant screen. I, I didn't like Stephen Fry's acting in that film. I didn't like Stephen Fry's acting. It's not good, is it? He's not great. He's never good? No, he's never good. The thing with Stephen Fry is he's always reassuring, never good. Yeah. And once you learn that, then you'll never look at him the same way. A lot of people are stuck on the reassuring he's, Stephen Fry. He's very good in Cold Comfort Farm. But he's, <laughs> he, he is. No, does, he is. Does he play a West Country farmer? No, he plays um, uh, uh, a sort of uh, would-be D.H. Lawrence figure uh, lusting after Florence Post uh, and failing to get anywhere. Was Catherine Cedar jones in that or am I totally misremembering? Yeah, she, you are completely misremembering. I thought, I thought so. Um, it's Kate Beckinsale. And, wow, okay. Uh, the lovely Kip Beckinsale. God, I, I would say fragrant, but I've been told off in the past for saying that. So it's, she is, she is also, It's not necessarily true. I mean, we can't verify how fragrant I've never sniffed her. You're right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure she has a smell. We all do. So they can't touch me for that. 
Can I also say, seeing as we're on this riff, um, many congratulations. Many congratulations. Bringing it back to uh, Neil Gaiman, to Michael Sheen, who's had a child this week. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Who also was the former partner of Kate Beckinsale. I did. My God. I did not know that. Yeah, he posted on Twitter. But was in Good Omens written by uh, Neil Gaiman. So that does make sense. He's also very kind to the fans of Good Omens on Twitter. I've noticed a lot of fans have done lots of fan art. And he tries to take time to respond to every I, piece I, of I, I hear interesting, very, inverted commas, fan art. I hear he's very kind. I think he's a lovely fellow. Yeah, yeah. Um, none but of he, this. He, he's had a, or rather his partner's had a child this week. Yeah. So I think that, that brings, that's the full circle. I thought he'd given up acting to become a full-time activist. Didn't I hear that for a while? Wasn't that his thing? Have you seen Good Omens recently? That's not being an activist. Is it being an actor? Though? I mean, he eats a lot of cake in that. He does. He, he plays uh, a a, char- a delightfully English G.K. Ca- Chesterton kind of... Careful, he's Welsh. He's, I don't think he'd like that. He is by inclination and birth. Yeah. But, uh, is he yeah. play, is he pl- I, can't, I can't remember. Is Tennant playing Scottish in that? Or what is no. he doing? Tenants, Are they both English? In Tenant's that? going to the uh, estuary English. Oh, Tenant. he's doing Bill Nye, isn't he? Indeed he is, yes. Right, yes. okay. Right, fine. Who, Tennant does a very good Bill Nye, actually. In fact, I feel pretty... Secure the crown of Nahi. You and I both love Nahi, by the way. Big fan. I think Tennant can take that mantle. No, but I mean, he's, he, he can't do Charles Paris. Can you imagine how awful that would be. Christ. Sorry, I'm just taking a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of this, as wonderful and colourful and interesting as it is, bears no relation to what we were meant We have taken a rather time. circuitous route, yeah. But I will say, Charles Paris, guys, check it out on the BBC Radio 4 Productions. The Actor Detective. He's fantastic. Um, surprisingly brilliant. Um, yeah, so we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about a film made in 1973. He doesn't mean me. He means Charles Paris. <laughs> uh, the Last of Sheila is the 1973 mystery thriller directed by Herbert Ross and written by mm-hmm. Tony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. Let me just hear that again. What? Tony Psycho Perkins... Oh, no, and Stephen that. into the woods sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's nice. Now, where the hell are you going? That was the last of Sheila. That was what they thought, anyway. Until they started playing Sheila's game. Tom thought he could beat the game. Christine played for the prize. Clinton was the master of the game. I call it the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game. Lee played because she had to. You think I'll ever hear the last of Sheila? Tommy, let's just make this movie and put the money in mutual bonds and go home. Philip knew too much about the game. Maybe Clinton broke the grill, nobody else was there. And I'm just puttering my way through the debris of my rusty imagination. Tom, where's the ice pick? What? I said, where's the bloody ice pick? Anthony thought you played for fun. I think it's the moment. My moment. Time for my fear. Alice knew the game was for keeps. Mm-hmm. Everybody's walking around. 
like to talk to you. It's about this game. I know we said we'd be careful, but I don't think anybody will be on the top deck. What's the game? Well, the idea is to discover everybody's secret without peeking, of course, and to prevent the other players from discovering yours. Any number can die. Weeze in closer, you'll be out of the picture. And I don't mean this one. It's an amazing film, Joe. We've just sat down and watched this, actually. We're just hot off the DVD uh, yeah, presentation. We are it. very hot mm. off the DVD. Um, the, you, if you could smell the tension in this room. Um, it's not tension I'm smelling. Yeah, well, well, I don't know what it is, actually. It's, it's like rising smell. It's definitely a very fermented uh, aroma. That's a... um, it's a great film, Joe. It's a wonderful film. And you've never seen it before. You brought Joe, this to my attention. I brought it to your door. Um... For me, I actually allowed you in. You said, "Which come, is a come first. through, yeah, come yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah." Is it region appropriate? And then we went to work. <laughs> I'm wondering what region appropriate means. In well, indeed, in this day and age, who can say? Yeah, but John, it's a, it's a, it's one of those films. I, I, I would call it a cult film, but I don't even think it's a cult film. It was a film made by a big director, written by big stars, featuring a cast of big, you know, Hollywood players. Annie McShane and yet it's been buried without trace I mean it's not it's not seen as one of the great 70s films it's not even that well known it's not well known at all no I mean you say it's by a big director by Herbert Ross has had a few Herbert Ross has done a few things yeah Um, Pachi should I tell you some of the things that Herbert Ross has done he was the choreographer for Cliff in The Young Ones now you tell me yeah now it becomes clear wow he also made a film version of The Back Eye um, by Euripides. <laughs> it's a great tragedy. Euripides, John. if you're listening, call us. But the title of it was, it's not the original title, it was originally called something like The Bacante. But one the of Bacchae. the. Time, the Bacchae. Yeah, no, The Bacchae, it's called The Bacante. Oh, okay. I made that distinction. Uh, but it was also called Bondage Gladiator Sexy. That Bondage Gladiator Sexy. Bondage, check. Gladiator, check. Sex, check. Yeah, I can't imagine who that was marketed to. Who starred in that? Um, weirdly, I don't know if you've... Have I made you come around my house and watch Star Maidens in the past? I would have remembered, John. Yeah. There's a brilliant German-British co-production. <laughs> There's a brilliant German-British co-production. It's a TV series. Aliens from the planet Medusa. They're feminists in the mid-70s. Naturally. Uh... Two of their slave men escape to Earth. Uh, one of them is Gareth Thomas with a with a streak, does he know this with a lemon streak in his hair. Yeah. Uh, the other Blake is, Blake Seven, yeah, Blake from Blake Seven. The other is a guy called Pierre Bryce, who plays Adam, uh, and in this film he plays Dionysus. So yeah, um, bondage, gladiator, sexy. I mean, he did other films. He did play again Sam with Woody Allen. Which is a fucking classic. Yeah. He did funny Some might say it's the, better Woody, the best Woody Allen film. Some might say you can't like any Woody Allen films now. Some would say you can look at Woody Allen films and recognise them for what they are and then subsequently go, Woody Allen, what a you know, terrible, creepy... Is he, is he the Morrissey of films? Is he though? Is he though? Is he so... Is Morrissey is the Morrissey so, of music? Is he so though? innately entwined in his own oeuvre that you can't look past him? Not to get back Can into... Can you not separate the art from the man? Well, this is the big question. Because it's Morrissey, because have, it's Woody Allen. I have female friends who would tell me that they no longer are interested in Woody Allen. 
who previously liked Willie Allen? It's the eternal question. You can look at them. It's the eternal question. For example, there's there's lots of Eric Gill's public art. Around Straight the away to Eric Gill. Everyone goes Well, there. he's the obvious one. Yeah, because yeah. it's high art, because he's a sculptor. So he's also the ultimate monster. Yeah, he's basically Bluebeard. Well, no, I, I would posit that Gary Glitter was a bigger monster, but, you know... We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know that, do we? But my point is... I wouldn't Eric, even say that Jimmy Samuel's a bigger monster. We don't know what Eric Gill really got up to. My point is, the higher the arts the less the outrage because the less the populism yeah. and ergo etc you know well, we've had this conversation before we have Gary many, G many Glitter um, basically because he's shit of this parish because <laughs> he's shit people want to kill him whereas you know Egon Sheila got away with loads of yeah. stuff but can I also add I mean I like some Gary Glitter records but the Glitter Band are really my, my he, he made some great records yeah but you're recording this so you don't really want to say that out loud well we, we shan't put this on the final take uh, you this. can probably edit this I like one as well but I really only like one which one is it I love you love me love no it, it takes all night long which is probably oh the my god the, the, most the creepy, worst one yeah. the creepiest of the... the worst one but it's such a brilliant song it was a great song <sighs> he does that all the way through but <laughs> anyway John for interesting love that brings us to The Last of Sheila in which uh, a child molester features as one of the uh Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's edit that out as well because, you know, we don't There really, is a child molester. Yeah, I know. We don't want to get give that the farm away immediately. You know, we don't want to say that this is the only film I can think of where the hero is a child molester. John, this is the only film I can think of where the hero is a child molester. I can't think of another film where the hero is a child molester. It's, 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 a, it's a puzzler. It has me reaching for my 70s book of cultural mores. Yeah. Because, frankly, I assumed even then that kind of thing was no-no. But one of the tropes in this film, one of the one of the characters, the hero, in fact, as we described, shall we say who it is? Who is that? Well, I mean, do we want to give away spoilers? Well, let's go back to the beginning. To begin at the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Joe, you want to talk us through the plot of this film? Okay, well, this is the film that trot was... Trot through the plot. I will trot through the plot. This is the film that was originally conceived in the minds of Anthony Perkins, a uh, Hollywood actor, and Norman Bates in Psycho, and Stephen Sondheim. And also Very... a direct descendant of somebody from the Mayflower, John Howland, as is Humphrey Bogart, which is a weird thing. So they're kind of related? That, well, there'd be multiple cousins away, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Generations down the line, they, they would have separated. But, you know, uh, Bostonian, uh, Brahmin, old money. Oh my God, there's definitely a, little yeah. bit, a tinge of the confidence of old money by that, you know. A tinge. A tinge of the confidence. Yeah. A, a very, very pale tinge, shall we say. <laughs> Anthony Perkins and uh, Stephen Sondheim, the celebrated writer of musicals. Yeah, I think that you can say that. That's, I think quite, that's not you. Fair, fairly language. fair to say. Yeah. Wrote a movie script called The Last of Sheila and they got it greenlit. And Herbert Ross, the director of such gems as... The Sunshine Boys, 7% Solution, Footloose. Stop. 7% Solution is one of my favourite films. Yeah, I know. He he directed it. It's a marvellous film. He even did Steel Magnolias. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. He also did Secret of My Success, which I'm not happy about. Did he do The Money Pit? No. I thought that must be somebody else. But anyway, Herbert Ross had a a mixed bag of a career. But he's a solid director. Um... I will say, our version of this film, the sound was terrible. It only came alive whenever there was motorboats careering <laughs> past. The dialogue was quite hard to pick up, but me and John muddled our way through. Um, so it's kind of it's like a whodunit on a boat full of Hollywood players, actors, directors, producers, agents. You put them all in the boat, 
and then the Vice of Murder Mystery. It's almost like sitting back and seeing what would happen. And it's a bitchy, waspish, witty, nasty piece of work. Maybe it was too nasty for that period in Hollywood, I don't know. It's the 70s, I can't understand it. But it's a hugely unpleasant unpleasant film. Well, nobody comes out of it well. No, not even Raquel Welch. Raquel Welch plays the the actress in it. Yeah. Uh, Diane Cannon plays the the caddy agent, who John and I both have a very great fondness for. Ian McShane, who I love, before he was famous in his 60s, uh, (laughs) Played the, the husband of Raquel Welch, the hanger-on. Yeah. Uh, and James, beautiful James Coburn, who basically copyrighted the shit he didn't grin, is in it. It's, no, it's, it's never far from his lips. It's like a fire guard over his mouth. It's extraordinary. Uh, Jim, James Coburn is a wonderful, charismatic, and yet not obviously attractive actor. There's something about him that's incredibly magnetic. Well, he's tall and thin. He's got mad teeth. You know. And he grins. Always works. Yeah, and he, he's having fun in every shot. Yeah, he's... Unbelievably cool. That's his thing. Even in flares. Yeah, even flares in a sailor shirt with a mod haircut that's grey. If you saw that in Belfast City Centre, you, you would think, "Keep your fucking scissors away from yeah, me, hairdresser." Yeah, yeah. But uh, he can make this work. He's got the skills. It's extraordinary. This is his film, and he's every scene he's in. He is huge in that scene. He's owning everything. Nobody else is on the screen. When he's in the room, nobody else is there. He takes over the screen. There's a wonderful bit where he's asking if someone's okay. He goes, no, no, don't answer that. I don't want this to descend in the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Gets bonmo after bonmo. It's extraordinary So, John, this is the first time you've seen it. Uh, And the last. Of Sheila. You were expecting a kind of early 70s Hollywood whodunit. What what did you get, did you think? Um, It's... I mean, it's based on things that uh, Stephen Sondheim used to do. He actually used to do little sort of uh, paper chases and puzzles, like yeah, and, yeah, puzzles yeah. and death games. Um, so I think actually they reverse engineered the entire plot and the characters out of one of these games. Um, but it really, really works. And as a, as a sort of time capsule of everything that's fantastic about the 1970s and 1970s films... Um, on, on apparently no budget at all. Yeah. I mean, they must have spunked all the money on the, on the people in the film. Because, on the cast. The cast because is Because re- most of it's in a boat. Yeah. Uh, a very like, expensive boat. And when you put somebody in a boat on, on the sea and have people interacting, it becomes basically his lifeboat. It's like people having yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. human conversations about it. You, you're basically unravelling foibles uh, the entire time. But it's actually incredibly witty, incredibly catty script. Um, full of amazing sort of one-liners and, and bits of business. Um, and the puzzles really work. And then you get this denouement that goes on for about 20 minutes. Here we go. Where, where Is it over yet? the most unlikely Poirot <laughs> in the entire world yeah, turns yeah. up and go, And they all sit on a banquette in the boats and, and have a, a long chat. And everyone's yeah. very gentleman. It's very Columbo-esque yeah, yeah. at the end. Uh, even down to the sort of, you know... The, the, the decor um, it's 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 a, it's almost a perfect little bottle of a film I love I, I loved it I genuinely I think, loved it I think every space and problem and detail is accounted for anything that happens is explained later I mean there's no they, they do those brilliant there's cutting, no loose ends. those cutting in flashbacks yeah yeah so you go back to sort of a bottle being thrown overboard and things like this and then there's a point where we were going well what about that bit oh 
that's just been explained. Yeah, okay, yeah. We got no, there's a great. Uh, you can see these things, but in the original thing, there's an ostentatious thing that you wouldn't expect to be filmed, and you go, "Well, that's a clue to something." And then it turns up later, and you go, "It was a clue to something." I'm very bright now. <laughs> yeah, so, I feel good I about myself. Yeah, though. this is this has made me the detective. So it's basically it's a classic Ag- Agatha Christie setup. Um, James Coburn, whose wife has died a year past in a hit and run accident after yeah. a Hollywood party. played by Yvonne Romaine. Uh, the original um, large-breasted hammer glamour uh, woman. That was on her CV. That was actually on her CV. I'm reading her CV now. It's quite short. Um, But uh, she did some great turns. Uh, Curse of the Werewolf. um, With Oliver Reed. Yeah, with Oliver Reed. Who Uh, may or may not have been invited to play the MXN role. Captain Clegg with Oliver Reed. Um... My favourite film she's in is Circus of Horrors, which, if you haven't seen it, is oh, an extraordinary film. It's a fantastic film. Yeah, I have yeah, seen yeah. it, yes. Uh, it features Donald Pleasance being uh, murdered by a bear he's dancing with, um, which is always good. Uh, if anything, that might be the apotheosis of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Pleasance M- murdered by, by a bear, bear he's, he's dancing, dancing with. with. That wasn't even in the fucking script. Look, what, ha- <laughs> that just what happens is... That right, just happens, John. Donald's very drunk. He drops the bottle. The bear stands on the broken glass of the bottle. Goes wild. Yeah. Donald doesn't know what's going on. You know. The dance becomes very bloody. It becomes a dance of death. Yeah. The dance begun. Yeah. But to get back to The Last of Sheila, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic <laughs> setup. It's a classic Hollywood setup, but and, and then the in jokes and the bond moves fly. There's loads of kind of, and all the characters are based on real people. Uh, Sondheim and Perkins had a lot of obviously pillow talk between them. Apparently, they were lovers at the time. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. Auntie Perkins had a a very uh, illustrious Hollywood love life. Well, I, I, I was apparently also, he was very shy. Uh, around women and had only same-sex relationships. Well, you say that, but until he met, wait for it, Victoria Principal. Haven't we all had that experience, though? My my God. (laughs) If you're going to be termed, it's going to be Victoria Principal doing (laughs) it. On principle. And my God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they met on the set of a film, which I thought I had the notes for, but I forgot what it is. And... uh, uh, she took his virginity it for, in a lady way. Uh, and then he, he, he went straight for a while and uh, married and, uh, you know. I think Tony Perkins... Had a couple of kids. I know he, I know he had a relationship with Tal Hunter. Um, he did, yeah. Hunter. I think Tony Perkins was another victim of those times where he was obviously a gay man trying to fit into the Hollywood heterosexual machine. Sondheim was a surprise to me. I thought Stephen Sondheim was an asexual... Ascetic hermit who sat atop a rock reading musicals. No? Well, there you go. Did you know that Tony Perkins had a musical career as well? No! Well, he did. He was that. He actually made two records in 57 and 58. I've heard about his album, actually. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And uh, have you heard the music? I have. I listened to Moonlight Swim. And which is uh, it's a lovely little country rocker and he's got a lovely pleasing voice yes a pleasing but little, equally uh, yeah. he sounds quite a lot like Anthony Perkins which <laughs> I quite like it's so it's, it's vaguely sinister because it's like Norman, Norman Bates crooning to you um, but no they're really good I think Joe if you're editing this maybe slip in some Moonlight Swim 
Let's go on a moonlight swim Far away from the crowd All alone upon the beach Our lips and our arms Close within each other's reach We'll be On a moonlight swim Let's go on a moonlight swim To the raft we can race And for just a little while I'll sit and pretend that you're on a desert island with me On a moonlight swim Well, we'll see how it ends up in the final letters. But uh, uh, he's tipping me the wink. Wink, wink, wink. Ladies and gentlemen. The thing is, I saw this film um, late night, Saturday, Friday night with my parents when I was about five or six. It's one of my formative memories is watching this film with my parents, which is why I sought it out. It's very hard to find, by the way. Hmm. For a big Hollywood movie of that type period, it's very hard to find. I had to get it on a double bill with the President's Analyst. Not right it's, a, it's a Coburn double bill. It's a Coburn double bill. and um, Great film. Hard to find, but worth finding. So it's your seven phases of Dr. Lau. That was my uh, formative... Really? Film that haunted, Is that the one that, that you can haunted my dreams for years and years and years, yeah. There's a scene in The Last of Sheila where Ian McShane... Not Ian McShane, I beg your pardon. Richard Benjamin. Yeah. That delightful, nebbish version of Omar Sharif. Has, <laughs> has glove puppets on both hands and he's looming towards... It's it's actually a really striking scene. He, he yeah. holds up these two sort of yeah. Raggedy Ann style glove puppets and goes, "I haven't got any gloves," and you know exactly what he's about to do. As a child, it's that terrifying. resonated with me. There was this film and uh, the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Those two movies, for some reason, happened to see with my parents. That film wasn't quite as traumatic, but this film was a very traumatic memory that I had to revisit. He's, he's, the base of the camera starts lurching around like Billy O immediately afterwards and you're in this confined space with all this plain yeah, 70s yeah. wood suddenly goes 60 psychedelic yeah hands closing in are coming yeah, in yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. and you're looking at uh, James Mason being strangled um, and nobody wants to see James Mason being strangled is it time to no. do my impression of James Mason it, um, it never is it never is time only it never it, is time only if you're going to say, are you trying to strangle me, dear boy? I'd rather you didn't. He doesn't say that. <laughs> does he say that in the film? I don't if only think he, he does. does. No, no, no. <laughs> but if we go back to the beginning, so uh, James Coburn has invited a bunch of Hollywood friends on a boat. And the implication is that one of them may or may not have killed his wife. Played play by them remain. Indeed. Ah, two hours to game time, gang. Let me describe the week's entertainment for you. The last time I played a game was charades at... at... my house, a year ago, the night Sheila was killed. As a matter of fact, everyone here was... Was there. Except, Lee, you were homesick in Santa Barbara, you said. Uh, no, I was homesick of Santa Barbara, I said. I like any game where you don't have to move. Well, you don't have to for this one, if you're smart enough. Meaning? Well, it's sort of... I call it the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. I haven't even described it yet. <laughs> uh, no, I couldn't have stopped. No, I dreamed up... Uh, can't you take it, Joe? Come here. Pay attention, please. Now, I dreamed up six secrets, one for each of you. Six little pretend pieces of gossip. Now, keep them secret. Gimme, gimme. Can we look at them? It'll help. How do you think these things are? Well, this one's only taken me a month to prepare, he said modestly. <laughs> it's marvelous. 
That's what I've always wanted to be. It says you are a snoop. No, 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 no. Don't throw it away. Keep them till Saturday and don't show them. So he plays a game where he hands them all the card that assigns them uh, a piece of gossip or a characteristic, including homosexual, informer, hit-and-run driver. So Alcoholic. He, they work in the film industry and, like, their big thing is being homosexual or an alcoholic. Come on, guys. But, of course, John... There was another thing that wasn't quite as bad, but still a wee bit embarrassing. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't you probably sweep under the carpet? Little <laughs> child molester. <laughs> it's one of the cards. One of the cards. Little <laughs> child molester. That's what it says on the card. Now, you might think that's a tautology. You don't need to have a little child molester. But they mention it in the film. There's a reason for There's that. There's a reason it for that. It does work. But also, more troubling,ly at no point is the fact of this character being a child molester ever further explored or indeed uh, criticised it's just a thing but that is a thing of the the 1970s and yeah. prior to that it's like it's not what it is now but the thing that brought my world it's like being that, a funny uncle but the thing about my world there's someone exposes an alcoholic someone exposes an informer and then someone exposes a little child molester and it was written off as, sure, you might make some witty joke about child molesting yeah, sort of and weird, move on. There's a sort as of weird was, parody going on there. That, my friends, would not happen today. It, it just it does show you how far that particular strain has telescoped. Yeah, oh my God. In and, its, you know. And possibly that's why it's not a, it's not a big DVD seller at the, uh, these days. I don't know, but it's still a fantastic film. Yeah, no, it's really a fantastic film, but I think that is massively problematic and strange. Hugely now. problematic. Oh because, uh, well, okay, spoiler alert. The the paedophile, let's call him a paedophile, because that's, that's what apparently he is, yeah. uh, is James Mason, who turns out to be effectively the hero, the hero of the end of the film. But only he's not the hero. He, he turns out to be as venal and unpleasant as everybody else at the very end of the film. No, he, he, he makes money out of out of uh, yeah. exposing the killer. But he's the one the audience is rooting for. Yeah. The audience is rooting for James Mason's character. He turns out to have... And there's a horrible scene at the very start whenever uh, James Coburn is Which assembling... Which you think nothing of. Yeah. Like the, like the Magnificent Seven, he's assembling his, his invitees for this party. It cuts to James Mason recording uh, an advert with a bunch of little girls in pigtails. And there's a little girl in pigtails sitting on his knee while he's taking the phone call. Fast forward half an hour when we realise that James Mason is the little child molester. Suddenly, it makes that scene a lot more sinister. It's astonishing. Now, there's a weird, toxic heart at the centre of this film, which I guess you're you're right. This is is going to be a hard sell to to make anyone anyone like It's actually an ugly film. There are no real... Heroes, there's no antagonist, there's no but protagonist. It's, it's an ugly film. Everybody where, loses in this film. It's an ugly way, yeah. an ugly film in the way that nobody could have anticipated in the early 70s when yeah. that was like, hey, he's a beautiful, he's just a funny, weird guy who does yeah. terrible things. Uh, but it's no worse in this film than being a homosexual, it's no worse than or being an, an alcoholic yeah. or an informer yeah. or an ex convict. Yeah. You know, it's just the values of this film are so strange. Yeah. By the way, guys, I know. Anyone listening to this is never going to see this film, but there's a wonderful bit where Ian McShane is... Uh, the homosexual card is played, and the character that claims to be homosexual... Richard Benjamin's character goes, It is, yes. by the way, a literal homosexual yeah. card. 
Literal, yeah. So there's, there's a card with homosexual written on it. And, it, and, it, and then Ian McShane goes, hey, you're just picking a card that suits you. And then Richard Benjamin says to Ian McShane, well, if it suits you better, and Ian McShane turns around and goes, are you trying to say I'm a homosexual? <laughs> uh, he would rather be anything other than homosexual. Yeah. In a very London, Cockney, aggressive way. It turns out he's the ex-convict, which seems to me like quite a good card to be pulled at that point. He's 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 he's, he's down for a, a GBH or something yeah. twice. Suddenly, Diane Cannon is very interested. Ooh, Diane Cannon plays short a very short and violent. Diane Cannon plays a very sassy, mm. very bitchy um, uh, agent, Hollywood agent. That's based that was based on apparently on a real person. Uh, let's face it, it's Sue Mengers, apparently. The, Sue Mengers, the talent indeed, agent. Indeed, yeah. Um, Dan Cannon never disputed that. Anthony Perkins never disputed that. So I think it was. Well, do you know that they offered her the part, Sue, uh, Sue Mengers? And then she said, no, there's too many of my clients out of work. I'll give it to one of my clients. And Diane Cannon, Cannon was one of her clients. Is that a fact? That's true, yeah. And then Dan Cannon put on, apparently, half a stone to play the part of Sue Mengers. Yeah, yeah. And... How did you do that? Did you just do that calculation? Half a stone, nineteen pounds. Counted, yeah, yeah. I've counted, yeah. No, it's actually, it's actually, I, I can't, I it's can't. actually seven points. But I'm quite right. impressed. Yeah. Um, uh, the thing is, uh, she added the weight and she played it to perfection. Yeah, she's I, a I, wonderful caddy. I, I think it's 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 both James Mason's and and Diane Cannon's film. This really, you know, Raquel Welsh is in it. Who's looking at Raquel Welsh in this film? John, I got I've got to say, Raquel Welsh. Um, I've never seen, seen her as a sex symbol. I've seen her as a a vacuous and very beautiful symbol of a crap period of Hollywood. Yeah, she's more iconic, really, than than talented. Well, she, <laughs> acting needs things to feed into it. Acting yeah. is is about being a human being, and she's yeah. not really one of those. Um, but I add, for, in the interest of parody, I, I find Tony Curtis to have the, a similar problem. He's quite pretty, but a terrible fucking actor. I find him too human. I think that's the problem with Tony Curtis. He's always doing bits. He's always trying to move around and Don't get in. And do it. <laughs> you, you can't watch an episode of The Persuaders now because Tony Curtis is doing too much. Yeah, next, yeah, yeah. You know, next to Roger, who's doing... Roger's doing nothing. Next he, to nothing. But Roger. He's, but he's yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, but the problem, I think, with Raquel Welsh is that she's very beautiful, um, and um, but a she's statuesque and, and, but, and striking she's, and arresting she's, and she's photogenic. Too and, much, and she can't act. She can't I think really that's can't the act. problem. Yeah, she can't yeah. really act. But uh, if you put in a fur bikini and have a scream at dinosaurs, or yeah. you know, I say, she's but, fine. But if you put it next to actual people who can act, like Diane Cannon, like. James Mason, yeah, like. but it was clear. It was clear that she was chosen for her sex appeal and her and her currency as a sex symbol. Whereas Dan Cannon was chosen for it. Well, but I, Dan Cannon is a fucking phenomenal actor. Uh, Dan Cannon and James, you're right. It's Dan Cannon's and James Mason's film. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I think the whole point of it is really, in a way, that she was chosen to be a shit actor because they're all playing ciphers. They're all playing sort of versions yeah. of real people. So she's actually perfectly cast. To be wishy washy and oh, yeah. memorable, but still striking. It's a very, it's a very in, it's a very Hollywood, it's a very industry film. It's, yeah. it's written by people in the industry about the industry. There's mm-hmm. loads of in jokes, and the rumor goes that Raquel Welch's character was based, and her husband, who's played by um, Amy Chain, were based on the real Ra- Raquel Welch and her then husband, Patrick Richard Curtis. Cullen. Patrick Curtis, very good man, yeah. Uh, but then apparently someone else said it was based on Anne Margaret and her controlling husband. So. 
Yeah, but Anne Margaret's universally liked, yeah. whereas Raquel Welsh, not so much. Well, after shooting this film, James Mason said he'd never met such a discourteous and unpleasant uh, actress. Yeah, I think that's true. And he never wished to work with her ever again. Unfortunately, he died. Well, Eleven well, years later. Eleven years later, <laughs> never had the chance. They could have made. They could have patched things up. Yeah, you know, it's not um, over. Well, it is over. But the rumours on that film were Raquel Welch was was a monster, and everybody hated her. And um, well, I think she sued the director for uh, something, and then flew flew off to London, and then just had to come back at the end. But it's not another self reinforcing aspect of the film. That the, the film is about Hollywood and the Britishness of Hollywood. Raquel Welch went, went and did that on well, the basis yeah. of this film about Hollywood. I think Diane Cannon said it was like uh, it was it was all about that sort of thing. Literally, the boat sank and the, <laughs> the photographer was was fired <laughs> like, during the process the of week. doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that, that was that set the, uh, the the trend for the yeah. rest of the film. But you don't see any of that in the film because what you do see in the film is a fucking Chinese box yeah. of tightly plotted cleverly done who is the murderer that you don't see it coming you really don't, don't see no. who that is no. when you do if you listen to this podcast you've sort of given the game away slightly but um, you shan't be watching this though guys it, it's, it, it almost... really 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 works and I'm really surprised because but is, is there a point John where you think this is going to go TV detective and it doesn't quite it feels like a TV detective kind of uh, movie then veers into something more cinematic. I think it's cleverer than that. Yeah, no, it's it, it's 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 darker and it's more venal and it's more um, human and clever than that. There's loads of Jessica Fletcher turning up at the end looking slightly stern, <laughs> uh, and and then smiling into freeze frame. Yeah. Um, isn't going to cut it with this one. You because... always had an eye for her jewels. I knew you married her for the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> freeze frame. There she goes. Yeah. Um, this is this is it's nasty. Nobody comes out of it looking well. It's it's a terrible indictment of human nature and Hollywood and the nature of Hollywood because they're all there on the boat looking to get something from James Coburn, who is the big movie producer. Yeah, they all think they can get something from him. I mean, the nicest person in it, really. Well, I suppose Diane Cannon's quite nice. She doesn't do anything. Well, she's horrible, but John, if you think but, about it, but the nicest thing in it is is, is Richard Benjamin's wife. She's right. delightful. The who millionaire t- turns out to be the daughter of the famous Hollywood. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, turns out to be a hit and run driver, alcoholic who commits suicide. Who sat in Olivia? Or does she? Who sat in Olivia the Havilland's lap? Yeah, whenever she was a child. Well, that would scar anyone, surely. There's little wonderful drops like that all the way through. <laughs> if there's one thing I hate, it's having my island speech interrupted. <laughs> It's one of the greatest single lines in all of Hollywood, I think. You know. Can we take a moment to uh, show appreciation for James Coburn as an actor, and indeed in this film? Um, he chews up every scene that he's well, in. Well, he's got the teeth for it. Yeah, but That's he actually owns it. He revels in it. He, he seems to be the only person on this film having a good time. Yeah. Um, and he's having his best time. But if you look at James Coburn in any film he's ever in, he's always having a good time. He's amazing. He's a strange actor. He's a cool... He's just cool. He's a cool he's guy. Weird. He's someone from the 50s who became big in the late 60s. So he's a man out of time who became famous out of his own time. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's fucking phenomenal. I, he's one of my favourite 
actors. James Coburn is not spoken about that much these days. There's just a sort of distance about him. He's it's like he's always slightly removed from the action, even when he's killed in this. Yeah. Spoiler. Um, he's still sort of acting from the grave. He's yeah. Still, he's still. His presence is all over the still film. Still there. Film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. You would believe there's a bit in the film right where he's already dead and someone is impersonating him through a grill in a confessional box. <laughs> I believe the Catholics are very fond of yeah, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Sort of thing. And he's still sort of owning the scene. He's, he's, he's got enough presence to play dead. It's the most charismatic thing on it. it. <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. A dead um, man being ventriloquized is the most stunning thing on that screen. I mean, uh, he's... Yeah, he's, he's in the... Obviously, he's in... The, in like Flint and our man Flint. Oh, man Flint. Two fantastic movies. Two remarkable James President Bond Analyst. President Analyst. I believe he's in... Uh, Hard Times with uh, Charles... Um, what's what's the film he's famous for? The cowboy film he's famous Magnificent well, Seven. He's in that, isn't he? Very early on in his career, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in Hard Times with Charles Bronson. Yeah. He's also in Iron Cross, which is a fantastic... Yes, Pac- he Pac- is, Pac- yes. Which is a phenomenal movie. He plays a phenomenal character in it. James Coburn, I think, is a magnificent lost actor. In Hard Times, where he teams up with Charles Bronson as a fist fighter, and he's like the hustler. Walter really? Hill, I think, yeah. Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. Another good actor. If I had to choose one good Charles Bronson Listen film, here, buddy. Well, Coburn does all the acting, and Bronson does all the punching. And what a man, a man. And Mr. Yeah, Majestic. Yeah. Hey, Ooh. wise guy, eh? <laughs> um, I haven't done my James Mason yet, have I? I'm not going to do it now. It's just no. too late in the day. Um, we should do two takes of this, and we will put them together. I think this has gone very well. You really do believe that, don't you? Yeah, I really do. So, John, um, many people say that whenever you lapse into David Bowie, it actually it sounds like James Mason. Yeah, but equally, when I do, lapse into James Mason, it sounds like Suggs. So, you know... Where does that continue the, I think that the, <laughs> I, I don't know, I'm just discovering more and more variations on the same voice. The terrifying is, thing is that James Mason was from the north of England. It's, yeah, that's and Suggs and Boy are from the Greater London area. Yeah, but they all have the same sort of uh, that was, was, was yeah. quality to their voices. So that could be all of them. Yeah. I don't know which one that was even. Um, there is a sort of uh, uh, James Mason and I talk like this. There was a great line. Of, I think I might be. When drinking Cook a second red brandy, one comes up with ridiculous ideas. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Joe, I think we've talked long and hard about this film. Um, are you largely in favour of it? I absolutely... It's a childhood memory for you. Does it, it live is, up to it? It really does. The memory was really visceral and there's like two scenes. One of the scenes is um, James Coburn's lolloping uh, kind of uh, made-up face in the confession box. Mm. The other one is uh, Richard Benjamin with two puppets at the end of the film. Which is... And a menacing, terrifying kind of... He suddenly stands up and the camera's right on his face. It's striking. It's striking as an adult. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, because he's got a sort of droll delivery. It's like, I don't have any gloves. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. It's the horror. And also, it's a callback to Ian McShane playing with glove puppets, and yeah. <laughs> etc. So those two moments really kind of... Uh, well, I would say frightened me, but they, they kind of... They, they resonated with me as a kid. They're like... And now looking back on it as an adult, I think it's a really interesting Chinese puzzle box yeah. of a film. It's and, tightly done. And I know it's written by Sondheim, one of the finest writers of books, I suppose, of musicals uh, of our generation. And, and Tony Perkins, like a actor who I admire, but 
never saw him as a writer. They've written this really interesting, existentially bleak, clever film. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. And at the point you think it's like, this could be done for TV, suddenly it's not. It's got great actors, and it's got three... Oh, so it's... It's, it's, a, it's a bit grown up for yeah. television. It's a bit darker yeah. than and, television. And the final resolution is bleak. Just, you know... Unlike Columbo. It's like the end of Alan Partridge as well. It's just a man confronting these demons yeah. parked on a bonquette. Well, it's a man who's just about to have been murdered, suddenly finding salvation and blackmailing the person who was about to murder him. Mm. So if you find that, it kind of morally upbeat the new one. It wasn't the only film they were trying to make. Oh, no? Yeah. In 1976... Sorry, 75... Are you talking about Perkins and Sondheim? Perkins and Sondheim. I understand they had a new script on the go, yeah. They were working on a film called The Chorus Girl Murder Case. Oh, my God. That's tantalising. Can you imagine? That would be fabulous. I wish that we could watch that right now. To quote Tony Perkins here... It's a sort of stew based on all those Bob Hope wartime comedies. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, Tony. Plus a little of Lady of Burlesque and a little Orson Welles magic show all cooked up into a Last of Sheila-type plot. Well, what do you make of that? I want to see that film. I, Why has that not been made? Jesus Christ. That's the best film of all time. And what was it called again? It was called The Chorus Girl Murder Case. I'm pretty sure we could have changed I that. I think we probably would have changed yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's nothing. The development. Yeah, no. But it never got made. But there's a script. I, I've read about this. There's a script that they wrote knocking around that hasn't been hasn't surfaced. I could do a fantastic rewrite of that script. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, John, that's a wonderful kind of reference to one of the characters in The Last of Sheila. Yeah. Who's condemned to rewrites, the writer. I don't just throw this together, Joe. This is all but, as tightly contrived Indubitably. As, as the last of Sheila. But uh, one of the one of the characters, Richard Benjamin, when he was complaining, and his wife, his rich wife, no less, was complaining, darling, you need to stop doing rewrites. We were both going, we'll do rewrites. We'll do rewrites. Why don't you work on Freak Show? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why don't he? Why, why don't he? John, um, John, would, would you um, <clears throat> let your partner Sue watch this film? Is this like the Chatterley case? What, what are you saying here? Yeah, is it, would, is it, would you let is it acceptable Sue your your other half Sue loves a good murder mystery she would, would like adore this film this would be right up her alley yeah. Um. so yeah obviously I would yeah she'd think it's brilliant uh, yeah I, th- I see you saying her there okay, yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what's going on with this no I'm, what I'm would, would is, you let your wife watch this <laughs> would film? you let you... would you let your that is the Chatley case, isn't it? Really? Would you let your servant and the answer is, watch this film? The answer is yes. Yes, he would. She is neither my wife nor my servant, no. by the way. I want that on the record. So, The Last of Sheila, John, in summation. Um, I, that's fantastic a, cast, that, by the way. That's a, no, forget the cast. We're, we're going we're gonna to carry... We're going to stop this now. High fives all round for this film. I enjoyed this brilliantly. The only thing I'm puzzled by is it took Ian McShane a further 40 years to become famous in Hollywood. That's because he stopped being sponsored by Lacoste in every scene. Oh, yeah. Every scene! He's man of the 70s in every scene. There's five different iterations. The, the gonad strangling strides. The on shirtless the cricket jumper. Wow. Uh, oh, my God. The tight red strides with the kind of short sleeve Lacoste. What do you call it? Tennis wrestling wear? Yeah. <laughs> there is a medallion at one point. There is chest hair in evidence. 
He's bringing the fight to you, BGs. The thing about what are you gonna do about it, Gib? The thing I learnt in this film is that Raquel Welch is not as tall as I thought she was because Ian McShane is taller than her. She's not ten foot tall. No, she's uh, about half that, and he's about five foot eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was fabulous. And would you watch I, it again? I would definitely watch this again. I would watch this with Sue. Can right. you imagine? Your partner, Sue, who likes this sort of thing. Yeah, she likes that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, this would be right or rally. John, have... can I just shock and surprise you? The second time I've watched it since I've purchased the DVD, and I got more out of it this time than the first time, and the third time I expect I will get more again. I doubt it, Joe, because the joy of seeing a film is seeing it with me. I can't think of a better way to end this. Well... Nor could I until you said, I can't think of a better way to end this. <laughs> That's a challenge to you, isn't it? John, the space there has left a stale... There's an odour in this room now. Stale odour. There's a, there's a rising smell. Here's the last of Sheila, John. What a, a fucking toast. brilliant film. Well done. Here's to Diane Cannon and all who sail in her. Yeah, Both. maybe not. Maybe not do that. And we're maybe not do that. And that's a wrap, John. I think you had that very well. Here's the Diane Cannon. It's the Diane Cannon, a fantastic actress. And James Coburn, Carrie Grant's a lucky man. Yeah. Coburn, you're a great actress too. <laughs> it's the Diane Cannon, a fabulous actor, and also James Coburn, a fabulous. Actress. Actress. Oh! And Carrie Grant, you're a lucky man. <laughs> Can we finish this with lucky man? Out of earth. And I am all alone. There is no one here beside me. And my problems have all gone There is no one to deride me But you got to have friends